0: Andrew Joseph Stack was a man who was very, very angry. He had uh, he'd been audited by the IRS, which is never a good thing when they come knocking on your door when you hear from the Internal Revenue Service. It wasn't his first encounter with the IRS. Uh, he had also had some run-ins with them in years before, years prior. And by the time February 18, 2010 rolled around two years ago, Andrew Stack was pretty much to the boiling point. He made a drastic decision. He began to work on a manifesto, if you want to call it that. It was a pretty lengthy document that would just railed against a number of different things. The IRS being one of the one of the, uh, the the key members in the letter that he was most angry with and he put together this manifesto just after midnight there on February eighteenth He finished it up and then he ultimately a few hours later around eight forty five or so, he chose to set his own house on fire. Now, his wife and his 12 year old stepdaughter were not in the home at the time. But that $230,000 house there near Austin, Texas, he set ablaze and absolutely destroyed it. While it was burning, he drove 20 miles to the uh, Georgetown Municipal Airport there near Austin, and he boarded his, boarded his, own, uh, his own single-engine aircraft. And uh, he chose to get clearance, which he received, and taking that plane up into the air, it was only a 10-minute ride to the Echelon building, which there in Austin, Texas housed a number of IRS employees. And as an act of his own will, that plane loaded with fuel, he chose to fly it right straight into that building. He killed himself. He also killed one other employee, and 13 others would be injured and would have their recoveries as a result of it. The fire engines that should have been there helping to put out that blaze were busy putting out the blaze of his own home. His wife and his stepdaughter obviously would survive because they weren't in the house, but you can only imagine what questions they must have had. This was a husband. This was a father. And it makes you wonder, how on earth do you begin to put the pieces together after something like that? How do you begin to, <laughs> to even find a starting point when something like that happens in your life? How do you even start to make sense of it? How do you begin to even look towards the next day, much less somewhere further, further down the road? Well, let's just pull that back a little bit closer to home. Let's think of our own scenarios. Maybe for you it's a scenario that's a little bit different. It's not as dramatic as what I've just explained. But for you it's something maybe that surrounds this economy that we find ourselves in. Now for four years there are numbers of people, many, many on these islands and in this city that have been impacted as a result of this economy and the downturn that it's experienced a number of you perhaps have taken on new vocations. Some of you have taken pay cuts. Some of you have had jobs and positions eliminated. Others of you, you brand, brand, uh, brand new moved into Savannah. You're new to this area. And it's not because of any kind of a uh, of, a, uh, of a moving closer to family. You came here looking for work. You've come here because the job you had ultimately vanished before your very eyes. And you heard there was a lead. There was something maybe here in this city that could be helpful for you. You know, this economy has put a lot of families on spin cycle and it's been spinning now year after year after year after year for others it may be something different than the economy it may be someone who's breaking your heart it may be a spouse it may be a divorce you've experienced maybe a child who is wayward and no matter how hard you pray no matter what you try to do it seems as if they keep making the same wrong decision and your life is just, just seemingly crumbling in front of your very eyes you don't really know what, what next step to take Maybe it's uh, loneliness, maybe it's discouragement, maybe it's depression, maybe it's some other uh, 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 thing that you face in your life that is so difficult for you and it has your world absolutely turned upside down. And your question is, how do I make sense of all of this? How do I somehow find a way to put all of this together to make it fit? How can I find joy? How do I move from, from point A to point B through all of this mess in which I find myself in a way that I can still feel victorious? Well, that's a great question. The world has answers. <laughs> you know, the world will give you a list of answers. You know, probably one of the most uh, uh, most uh, seemingly effective answers the world gives is just try to mask your hurt. Try to mask your pain. Drink it away. Uh, try to you know, do something. Take, take, ingest something that will help to mask it, to cover it, to kind of numb it, to soothe it. Uh, you know, some new relationship, some new pursuit. Just mask it. Just try to cover it. The only problem is, is that it doesn't cover it for very long. And many times that ends up adding more trouble to the top of the heap anyway. Sometimes the world will say, we just need to get bitter. You'll get angry. You're owed something. Put a chip on your shoulder because you deserve better than this. And so people all over this country just get angry and they get bitter and they get mad and they get fed up. And then there are others that just flat throw in the towel and just quit. Just, you know, we're done. We're done. Life is too hard. And I don't know how to take the next step. I don't know how to get from where I am to a place where I used to be. Well, the world has its answers. But the good thing is, is that Scripture... God has a better answer in fact I would be willing to say it's the only answer of how to move through the difficulties that come in life in a way that may not always make sense of them but in a very real way gives us peace and gives us stability and we see that demonstrated today in Acts chapter 28 and so turn there with me if you will to the last chapter of the book of Acts We've been moving through this book for a long time now. If you're just brand new here to this church, you've just started visiting, uh, we're glad you're here. And if you want to catch up on this series, well, you can purchase it. It's uh, 66 CDs at cost of $291. <laughs> just kidding. The, but this is the 65th sermon, this me- 65th message out of this series. We've been in Acts for a long time. We're going to finish it up, God willing, next week. This has been a great ride, man. I have learned so much through this series. The book of Acts is an interesting book. It's a little bit different than a lot of books of Scripture. It's really similar to an Old Testament book in that Acts doesn't necessarily teach a lot of doctrine. Now, everything in it is true. We bank on it because it's God's Word. But it doesn't teach didactically. It doesn't teach doctrine. It doesn't teach theology. It it reads more like a journal entry, 28 chapters of journal entries. It reads like a historical book because that's what it is. It's chronicling the beginning, the early days of the early church in the first century. Now everything in it we can trust in, everything in it is true, but what we find here in the book of Acts is not so much a teaching of, of, of truth as it is a modeling of truth. And what I want us to see this morning is going to be an example, a principle that comes out of the life of really the key player in the whole book of Acts, a man by the name of Paul. And so let me just give you a little bit of the backstory for Paul. Many of you are familiar with this, others may not be. Paul, really early, um, a number of chapters Earlier, about chapter 22, begins to get in the hottest of hot water. I mean, he's been in hot water before, but Paul in chapter 22, he finally reaches you know, kind of the boiling point, and he finally just makes angry the ones who go after him with every bit of vengeance that they have, and those are the religious Jews of his day. Well, in chapter 22, ultimately, what happens is, is there are some charges that are brought against Paul and they're false charges. They're just trumped up. They're not true, and yet they begin to stick in a sense that they're pursued by the authorities, and so from chapter 22 in the book of Acts all the way really pretty much through the end, we're chronicling what happens as a result of these charges that are brought against Paul. Well, he is ultimately, uh, he's put in prison. He's left in prison for two years, and what we see is that Paul, he, he, uh, he, he makes a claim that was hard for us to understand, but would have been popular in his day. He, he claims that he's going to take his case all the way to Caesar, which in the first century in this day would have been Nero. And so Paul says, I'm going to take my case to Nero. I want to appear before Caesar. I want to appear before Nero. And so they grant him that wish. They had to. He was a Roman citizen. And so what we found here in these most recent chapters is that Paul, by ship, has been placed on a journey towards Rome. And in chapter 27, the dramatic really happens. What happens in chapter 27 is that Paul, 275 other passengers on board this ship are traveling towards Rome. Now they end up ultimately just kind of wandering through the Mediterranean Sea. The reason for that is because of a storm that had drummed up. Fourteen straight days, the crew of the ship didn't eat for two solid weeks. The storm was so bad. We're talking 45 knot winds, 25 uh, uh, foot waves. It was not a pretty picture. And so by the end of chapter 27, this ship has wrecked on an island called Malta, an island that you probably heard of before. And so Paul and 275 other sailors and crew, ultimately they get off the ship. The ship is, is, is run aground, is being beaten, torn apart by the waves, by the wind. And uh, every one of the people on board have to j- jump into the water. They have to either swim to shore or they have to just hang on to some plank of wood to try to ultimately get to shore. But the thing is, is that every single one of them makes it. And so when we get to chapter 28... It picks up there with, uh, with Paul and these 275 others here on the island of Malta. And the example that he's going to set is a great, great encouragement. I'm just saying, for those who struggle and for those who go through times in life where it's just hard to make sense of it all. And so pick up with me. We'll move uh, through uh, a portion of chapter 28 this morning, beginning in, uh, in verse 1. So pick up with me there in verse 1. It says, When they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. Uh, let me put this on a map for you real quickly. Now, you, uh, you're familiar with where Italy is, or as my dad would have said, Italy. <laughs> yeah. you, got, you got Italy in your mind. Italy shaped like a boot. Now, if you remember back in school, Italy you know, shaped like a boot. There's also an island there that was kind of like a football or a rock. I chose to call it a football. That's Sicily. So you got Italy, you got Sicily, 60 miles south of Sicily, that's where Malta is. So that's where we are on a map. It says that they find themselves, come ashore on the island of Malta, verse 2. It says, the natives showed us extraordinary kindness for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and they received us all. Now, when it says natives, your translation may say barbarians. What you don't want to picture here are you know bone through the nose, crazy hair, war chance. That's not what we're talking about here. In the first century, if you were not a Greek speaker, you were considered you were called a barbarian. It didn't mean that you had no morals or anything like that. It, that's just the way they referred to them. And so when it says that there were natives ashore, that's probably really a better rendering. They, you know, these were folks that were uh, indigenous to the island of Malta. They did not speak Greek. They showed tremendous kindness. Now here's why that was important, because when you remember these sailors and this crew, they've gone two weeks without food. They've had one meal in two weeks all right they are they are freezing cold it's more than likely october during the year they've just been rained on they've had to swim through the sea to get to this island in the first place and so it's really nice that they find there for themselves you know natives that are indigenous to this land that are showing kindness to them and not looking to try to harm them verse three it says but when paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire now let me just stop right there paul the greatest missionary this world has ever seen Choosing to jump in there, rolling up his sleeves, getting his, getting his hands dirty. He's serving. You know, he's not back in his trailer somewhere saying, guys, call me when the food's ready. You know, this is Paul. Yes, he's a prisoner, but he also had every right to kind of sit this one out, didn't he? I mean, back on the ship, it was Paul who pointed everybody to God and said, hey, listen, uh, we need to remember God is going to get us through this. And uh, it was Paul who said, you need to eat. And I'm going to say the blessing. And I'm going to thank God in front of everyone. It was Paul who would have had every reason to say, my work's done. I'm going to take a little siesta. You do all the work. But no, he didn't do that. And this is just a side note. I'm not going really too far down a tangent. I don't like to chase rabbits a whole lot. But if your faith is one that uh, waits on everybody else to serve while you sit and you watch, then you got the wrong faith. <laughs> Because that's not the faith we read of in Scripture. The, the faith we see in Scripture is a faith that was modeled by Christ who got in the trenches, who got in the deep water, who got in the dirty, the, the, the muck of our life, so that He could ultimately lead us out. And every Christian who has a relationship with Christ is called to get right down in those same trenches, right down in the lives of people who hurt, right down in the midst of those who, who are a, a bit dirty and a bit messy, just like we often have a tendency to become. And that's what Paul did. So he rolls up his sleeves. He's picking up sticks. He's getting wood for this fire to help out. Verse 3, second part, it says, And a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. Now there are some liberal theologians that will point to the fact that today there are no poisonous snakes on the island of Malta. Some will disagree. There are many that will agree with that. Some will say there is one called the cat snake that is a poisonous snake on that island still uh, today. You know what? That doesn't even matter because this was 2,000 years ago. And if the Bible said there was a poisonous snake, even one there, then there was one. <laughs> and Paul found him. He must have been like some kind of snake charmer or something, I guess. I don't know. Now, there's a reason we know he was poisonous. One, because of the, the way the natives would respond in verse 4. We'll get there in just a second. But as Paul's laying these, these sticks on the fire, <laughs> this viper, this poisonous snake comes out and whop, latches on to his hand. I don't like snakes. I don't, make, I don't like snakes even a little. I can't stand snakes. I'm just saying. Wade's spiders, I'm snakes. We're, I guess that's a pair. I don't know. That's a creepy pair, but that's a pair. I, I never have liked snakes. And I think it goes back to when I was about five years old. My brother, he's seven years older than I am, and my cousin, eight years older, they had, uh, they had slept out in the backyard in a tent. I was probably five there, around 12, 12 13, I guess. And uh, they had st- stayed out in the tent. If the best I can remember, the next day, they had either gone off to school or they'd gone off somewhere, I can't recall. And uh, so the next day, I go wandered out to the tent, and I still remember why. I mean, this was around five years old. I was going out to get my baseball glove because I felt like and I thought like it that it was in the tent. And so I go out to the tent, and when I uh, unzip it and I step in to get my baseball glove, right there in that tent was a snake. And I still remember the look of it, partly green, partly white, and I was mostly every bit gone. I I did not want to stick around to find out anything else about that. My mom had to go get one of the neighbors because my dad was at work and the whole nine yards. And I still remember that. I was traumatized by that event. I do not like snakes. Now, some of you are so stuck in sin that you do like snakes, and I understand that. (laughs) Now, Actually, I had a seminary professor who was just crazy, still crazy about snakes, so that was a joke. Don't run, you know, but I I don't don't like them. I can't stand them, and so if this would have been me, I can tell you, I would have responded with my own little unique dance, but for Paul, he responded a very unique way. We're going to take a look at that in just a second, but so Paul is laying these sticks on the fire, and and as he does it, the heat brings out this particular poisonous snake, latches onto his hand, and uh, Look at what it says, verse 4. It says, When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. Now remember, Paul was a prisoner at this point. He wasn't a murderer, he was a prisoner, uh, unjustly so. But there were other prisoners that were on that island. So they say, Undoubtedly, this guy's a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. See, that was a very superstitious response. There was a false mythological God named Nemesis, from which we get that word in our English language. And the belief was is that if you were, had done something unjust, then Nemesis was going to get you. And what they begin to assume here is that, well, the sea didn't get him, but this snake did. And so what they did was, verse 5, or, or rather uh, it tells us that, that in verse 6, that they were expecting that he was going to swell up or die as a result of this. Now, that, that, that's a great way to pass the time, isn't it? <laughs> you know, if I get a snake bit up here on this platform somehow, if it comes crawling out because of the heat of these lights and it latches onto my hand, don't, don't just watch me to see if I blow up like a bullfrog and just keel over. Just call somebody, okay? I mean, get somebody to help me out. This, I just, I don't understand this exactly. So verse 4, the snake latches onto him. Look at verse 5. This is an interesting verse. We're going to come back to it. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. Verse 6, but they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and they had, and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and they began to say that he was a God. Now the Bible doesn't tell us Paul's response to that. I think we know because this had happened before. I think he was very quick to point out to them, I'm not a God. I, there is one who is a God and the God. And I have a feeling Paul probably told them about him. Probably most of them came to know Christ. And likely there was a church planted before he left. It's a real interesting event that took place. Verse seven, we're just going to read these verses. I won't make much comment, but it's kind of a two-parter here at the beginning of this uh, of this chapter. There's another story, shifts gears, that is dramatic in nature, shows the power of God. Verse seven, it says, "Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island, named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed, afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed." He laid his hands on him and he healed him. Well, after this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. And they honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. At the end of three months, they were there for three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. We'll stop right there for this morning. There's a key verse there in that passage to me that you may have missed. It's one of the shortest ones, and yet, to me, it's one of the most significant. And it's going to tie in everything that we're looking at this morning. And that key verse is in verse 5. Take a look at it again, if you will. Verse 5. This is what Paul's response was as he's laying these sticks out on this fire and this venomous snake comes out and and it bites him, latches on. Here's what Paul's response was in verse 5. Just read it with me. It says, however, he shook the creature off into the fire and he suffered no harm. And that's it. That's it. That's all. That's all we get. So here's Paul laying out sticks. Fire's growing. Snake comes out. Bam! Latches onto his hand. Paul just into the fire, goes about his business. Hey, here's there's a sick man in town. Well, Let's go see him and see what God does. And he just kind of goes on his merry way. No big deal. Hey, what would you have done? <laughs> You're out in your backyard to you get the big game coming up that night. You're going to grill out some steaks and get ready. Hey, it's kind of chilly outside. I'm going, Let's make a fire. And you go out in the backyard, and you're you're getting up some wood out of the backyard out there near your shed, and you reach down and you pick up that last little log, and right out of that is a six-foot rattlesnake. He doesn't rattle at all. He just latches onto your hand. What do you do? Is that what you do? <laughs> no. Anybody want to demonstrate what you would do? Just get a little spice to the service? No. No, we wouldn't do that. But for Paul, that's all he did. Why? Here, here's the thing to me. This is what pulls it all together. Do not miss this. How is it that Paul could respond so calmly and so ordinarily to such an event that would have traumatized every single one of us? Here's why. Don't miss it. Because of the promise of God in his life. Let me show you. Look back to verse or chapter 23. Chapter 23. This is really in the early days of what was going on here that led to Paul going to Rome in the first place. Chapter 23, look down at verse 11. You see, early on, God had given Paul a promise. Look at what that promise was in verse 11. It says, But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side, that's Paul, and he said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. You see, God had promised to Paul, I'm going to get you to Rome. Paul had learned that when God said something, he believed it. Look at chapter 27. Chapter 27. This is in the midst of the shipwreck that I just described. Chapter 27, look down to verse 23. Paul is speaking and he says to these sailors and to this this uh, to these prisoners on, the, on board this ship he says for this very night an angel of the god to whom i belong and whom i serve stood before me saying do not be afraid paul you must stand before caesar and behold god has granted you all those who are sailing with you? Why is it that Paul, as he stood there on the edge of that fire, and he's picking up sticks, and that poisonous snake latches hold of his hand, and don't forget, he's traveling with a doctor, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. He knew what happens whenever you get bit by a poisonous snake. Why is it that Paul could just shake the thing off in the fire and just move about his business? Because God had given him a promise, Son, I'm going to get you to Rome, and when you're there, you're going to testify of the greatness of my name. And I believe that when Paul was bitten and that snake was hanging on, the first thing that flashed through his mind is, I'm going to be just fine. Because God, the God of the universe, the God who appeared to me on that road to Damascus, the God who has saved me, the God who keeps me, is the God who's going to get me to where he's told me I'm going. And he shook it off, and he trusted God, and he moved on. That's strong. You know, there's a principle there, and I want you to jot it down. There's a principle there for every one of us who go through times we don't understand. And the principle is simply this, that you can experience peace and stability when you trust and when you act upon God's biblical promises. You, in your life, right where you sit, regardless of your economy, regardless of your family situation, regardless of the hurt that you face, regardless of what you've experienced, right where you sit this morning and tomorrow and the next day, every day, you can have peace, you can have stability in your life, if you were willing to not just believe in but act upon the promises that God has given you in His Word. Now there's a reason whenever I put together that simple principle that I put God's biblical promises. And the reason is this, is because we have a real tendency, don't we? To kind of dream up things and to uh, fathom thing, or, or, or fashion things in our own mind and then accredit them to God. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I believe God is going to give me this. I believe I've claimed that property. God's going to give me that house. God, you know, God never said in His in His in His word that that house is going to be ours. But somehow we've kind of fashioned our mind. I believe it. Why? Because because God showed me. God told me. No, not necessarily. Defining His word you might have had Mexican the night before, and that might have a little something to contribute to it, but God had not shown you in his word. See, there's a reason that when we start clinging to promises, we have to be careful that they're not our own promises, that they're God's promises for us. And when we find those promises written in his word, listen to me, if he's promised them, they are going to come to pass. They are true. We can bank on them lest he be a liar. And if he's a liar, he's no savior. And if we have no savior, we are lost and undone. And so whenever we start going through times of difficulty in our lives and the rug gets ripped out from under us and we don't know which direction to go, the first place we as Christians need to go is to the promises of God. And if you don't have a relationship with Christ, His promises are null and void for you. They don't apply because you're not His. The first place for you to go if if you're not a believer is to you go run into Christ and let His promises then begin to take root in your life. And that's what Paul did. Changed his whole life. Doesn't matter what it was, shipwreck, snake bite, people hate you, run you out of town, we're going to get your neck. Sorry, God said, I'm getting to Rome, meet me there. <laughs> that was his perspective. And by the way, he made it, because God's no liar. You know what it says in the book of Numbers? Listen to this. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, listen to this description of God. Boy, this is awesome. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent, repent. Has he said and it will not do and, and he will not do it, or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Man, I love that. God is not like us. Phineas was a two year old boy, whenever his grandfather deeded to him a piece of land, a piece of property. Well, for a little two-year-old, like Phineas, when you're deeded a piece of property, it means nothing. But when you get to be four, and your grandfather, and your father, and your family starting to tell you, hey, you have property that is yours, and yours alone. And this property has a name, it's called Ivy Island. Well, little Phineas, early on in his life, began to get real excited. I've got a four-year-old, and he gets excited about a lot of things. Little Phineas, I could only imagine, as he grew older, five, six, seven, his little mind began to conjure up all the things that he would do when he would one day take over this that had been granted and given to him, Ivy Island. I imagine he probably began to think about the, uh, the, the, the land that would be, would be dealt with and would be, uh, would be uh, mowed and would be taken care of. He began to think of all the victories he'd win, the battles he would fight on Ivy Island, the areas that he would begin to explore. And, and, and Ivy Island, for this little boy Phineas, became a whole new world for him. And it was only a matter of time. And when he got to be 10 years old, the day came when Phineas' his family sat down with him and said, Son, today's the day we take you to see Ivy Island. When they got there, to his amazement, he saw what he described as a worthless wasteland. And as his family laughed, his heart broke. Phineas Taylor, P.T. Barnum, would make a life out of tricking people. He would make a name jerking the rug out of those who had placed their trust in him. You know what? God will never do that to you. And if everybody else does, and your world, world crumbles because people you trusted aren't there anymore, or because something you trusted didn't hold true, or because your world has come crashing down and you have no idea how am I going to make any sense? Where do I even start to move forward? God is there, Christian, he's there, what are some promises that hold true, you know, you got a card when you came in, that's our free gift to you, it's the least we can do, you got a card, I want you to take that card, if you got one, if you didn't get one, just find something, you know, stack an envelope in front of you, something to write on, on one side of that card, I want you just, to, I'm going to kick start you just a little bit here, what are some promises that apply to you, you just jot them down as I mention them. How about Romans 8, 28? For all things work together for good, the Bible says. All things work together for good for those who love God and for those who are called according to His purpose. Even the worst of times, even the most difficult challenges that face we face, God has a way of taking them and crafting them into something that is good for the one who knows Him. Philippians 1, 6, Paul writes in that letter that, He who began a good work in you, The day that you gave your life to Christ, God began a good work in you that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He didn't bring you this far to drop you off on a curb and say, I'll see you in heaven. God's going to walk with you through the challenges that you face. He started that work when you came to Christ, and he's going to complete it until he calls you home. Jeremiah 29, 11, one of my favorites, God says, For I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. You see, God is not against you. He's for you. And where he may do discipline in your life to draw you close to himself is because he loves you too much to let you get away without a fight. And so his plans for you are good. They're for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. What about Matthew chapter 11, verse 28? It's one of the greatest invitations in all of Scripture. It's one of those two-handed invitations as God raises up both hands and he waves for you to come. He says, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy burdened. And then he promises, and I will give you rest. Oh, he didn't promise to take away the burden. He didn't necessarily promise to take away whatever it is that makes us weary, but somehow in the midst of that weariness, in the midst of that burden, he, in a way, as only the God of the universe can, will give us peace and give us satisfaction and give us contentment and will give us rest as we come to him. John chapter 10, verse 10, there's another promise there, that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That is a promise. Don't lose sight of that. But he also counters it. Jesus says, but I've come that they might have life. They might have it more abundantly. And don't forget John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, even for you. That whosoever, even you, should believe in Him would not, have, would not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life. That's just a small glimpse of the promises that God has given to you. On the other side of that card, in just a moment, I'm going to have you do something else. But I want to encourage you this morning as we close that no matter what your struggle is, no matter where you hurt, no matter what event has caused you to think, how on earth do I make it through this? God is good. God is for you, not against you, believer. And His promises, I promise, will always hold true. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You get in the trenches where we are. And Lord, that You don't slap us on the wrist when we're there. Lord, you take us by the hand and lead us out if we're willing to follow. And so, Lord, we thank you that you do all things well. The key for us is to know Jesus, and I pray today for those who don't know Christ so they wouldn't linger another moment before they turn from their sin and invite Jesus to come in and to take over. God, I pray for those who are Christians already, who are having such a difficult time right now, whatever the case may be. maybe related to family or finances or some personal struggle in their lives. And God, I pray for them that you would give them that assurance that you are in control, God, that you are good. And I ask, God, that you would help them to hold true to your promises from this day forward. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask Nathan to play quietly here in just a moment. And as he plays, I want to give you a minute to take that card and to flip it over. And I want you on that side just to write that area or areas of your life maybe for you that it's that moment that, that is the most difficult for you right now. Some of you might not have anything to write. And if you don't, then use this time to thank God for His favor and for shielding you. But just remember, those times come. We live in a hard world. And I want you to take a moment to just jot on that clear side of your, of your card, that opposite side. That area of your life right now where you most need to trust in the promises of God. And I want you to begin to pray. Lord, in your word. Bring me to those promises. Make my eyes attentive to the promises that you've already made to me that can help me to sail through this challenge in a way where I still have joy and I still have hope and I still have purpose because I know I can trust you. And so I want you to jot down that challenge that you face, whatever it might be. We're going to give you a minute to do that. In just a second, we're going to begin to sing. So you take a minute as Nathan plays quietly to jot that challenge, to jot that down as God leads you.